The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Hello and welcome to another uh, podcast from the NAS section on spinal oncology. I am Matthew Goodwin, a spine surgeon at Washington University uh, in St. Louis, uh, where I focus mainly on spinal tumors. And today I'm joined by two of the world's experts in spine tumor surgery. Uh, we have Dr. John Shin, a neurosurgeon at Harvard and Mass General in Boston. And we have Dr. Ilya Laufer, a neurosurgeon at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, Cancer Center in New York City. They're here today to tell us a little bit about how COVID-19 has affected uh, care of, of their spine tumor patients and, and certainly of, of how care has worked uh, at their center. So I think we can just jump right into it. Uh, first of all, welcome to both of you. Uh, I've learned a great deal from both of you over the years, so I'm uh, very uh, happy to have you both here today. Maybe we can just start talking about how COVID-19 and the, the pandemic has affected your, your particular center uh, and what it's meant for care of your spine tumor patients where you're, where you're at, uh, access, treatment, et cetera. Uh, Ilya, since you're in New York City, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how uh, how things have gone there. Well, uh, Matt, thank you very much for the uh, kind introduction, um, and it's great to uh, be participating in this webinar. Uh, so COVID-19 um, has certainly changed uh, many things in New York City, uh, as I'm sure it has for all of our practices, lives. Um, uh, you know, it, we're starting, uh, this is a uh, December already of uh, 2020, and uh, we're quite a bit away from uh, March of 2020 when everything started. Um, New York City at that time uh, very quickly shut down, including uh, most of the, uh, even remotely elective surgery, um, and all the hospitals were quite overwhelmed with uh, uh, the number of patients that were coming through the emergency room and the ICU and the inpatient wards. So at that time, um, for the first, let's say, three, four weeks, uh, meaning you know, March and April, uh, our hospital wasn't doing any elective surgery um, and was limited only to emergencies and urgent surgery. Now, we're dealing with cancer, of course, and um, you know, that takes on somewhat a different meaning because uh, cancer doesn't stop and doesn't wait for you know, a few weeks or a few months. So our hospital never fully shut down, although uh, many of the main uh, operating rooms were closed and uh, uh, there were plans to use them as overflow ICU units and such. So uh, our surgery had to move down to some of the other operating rooms that are not usually used uh, for major surgery. Uh, we did uh, end up doing some surgery just because, uh, they said, um, you know, tumors kept on growing, and uh, in the spine tumor world, that meant uh, patients continued to present with spinal cord compression and mechanical instability and required care. Uh, over the first few weeks of the pandemic, it took a while, I think, for all of us to get our bearings and figure out um, what's a safe way to take care of the patients and what's a safe way to uh, operate on these patients. Uh, and uh, we vacillated between, you know, regular masks and uh, N95 masks and even uh, PAPR um, uh, equipment when uh, patients were COVID positive at that time. Uh, uh, you know, after the initial shock, uh, New York City has gotten back to more or less uh, normal status, I'd say, and the hospitals are largely back to normal. 
Um, we haven't fully recovered in terms of the volume just yet, but I think we're getting close. We're at you know, 90, 95% capacity uh, at our cancer center. Uh, many of the patients uh, delayed some of the care, and um, in June we saw that, um, and it was manifested by some of the patients uh, presenting in a more acute fashion at that time. Uh, many of the patients moved out of the city for a while or some for good, um, and that has affected the distribution of the patient population from the main hospital in Manhattan to many of our regional sites that are much busier now than they were before. Um, I think the next thing we'll probably talk about is telemedicine, and I think that's also been a, a huge change for us. Prior to COVID, we talked about doing telemedicine, and uh, you know, starting in uh, April and May, we started doing it very actively, and uh, still to this day, the majority of my visits, uh, initial and follow-up, are actually done uh, via telemedicine, although now we're trying to do most of the initial visits uh, in person. So I think that's about the summary for us uh, in terms of a cancer center in New York. John, similar similar type thing happening uh, or or happened in Boston with with kind of all the uh, adaptations that have been made uh, uh, in New York. Yes, uh, again, thanks, Matt, for the invitation. It's it's really great to be here uh, with you and Ilya. Uh, as Ilya said, our experience is very similar. Uh, there was a period when the entire hospital in terms of elective surgeries was uh, essentially canceled and we were not able to uh, do elective cases. Uh, however, we were able to do urgent cases uh, in, in, uh, in the oncologic setting, uh, spinal cord compression, you know, spinal instability. Those were cases uh, that were easily able to be uh, scheduled and booked. Um, over the course of the last several months, uh, we've definitely picked up in terms of volume, but I think that uh, the challenge still remains um, uh, getting patients in uh, as uh, for a certain period of time uh, because of the reluctance for patients to come to the hospital. Uh, we were seeing uh, just the acuity level of patients uh, was much greater. So patients were coming in uh, with uh, greater dysfunction, uh, neurological deficit, functional declines, uh, and also uh, sicker. Uh, many of our patients have significant medical comorbidities, including cancer. So this definitely stressed the system to a certain extent. And uh, what it did was, even though many patients tried to avoid hospitalization, um, you know, it did sort of affect the way that patients were eventually discharged. And so uh, this would lead to, uh, you know, more readmissions or possibly uh, issues with uh, discharge disposition as, you know, patients were also reluctant to go to acute rehab or other facilities uh, if they were not um, safe to go home. So I think that over time, we've definitely seen um, operations come back to a more normal state, uh, but definitely it has been a learning experience in terms of trying to uh, navigate the challenges of taking care of a pretty sick uh, patient population uh, in this setting. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you. Uh, first of all, thanks. Those are those are great uh, uh, comments on on how things have gone. It's uh, it's interesting to hear uh, both of your takes on how things have uh, how both places and and both your practice you, you're kind of forced to adjust. And um, you know, Ilya talking about kind of the initial shock and what mask to wear. 
you know, we certainly kind of went through through a similar thing. I'll tell you to the telemedicine comment, I, I certainly uh, am much quicker now to say to patients, you know, for follow-up visits particularly, hey, haven't we do that via telemedicine? Uh, and if you're doing fine, you know, if you need to come in and see me, come in and see me. But uh, I find myself doing way more of that, uh, uh, even now looking forward, where I think soon there's probably going to be a vaccine and maybe in the next year things will uh, get a little more back to normal, hopefully. Um, you know, I'm curious how much you guys think those types of things, the televisits, uh, uh, will stay with us moving forward. I mean, the I guess the double-edged sword of, of doing so much televisit and teleconference is, you know, this morning I gave a lecture to the fellows at, you know, 6.30 to 7.10 and, you know, with the click of a button got onto our spine tumor board and presented seven or eight patients and then, you know, finished that up while I was walking to the OR and when I walked in we were ready to flip. So it's, you know, you have this incredible ability to kind of go to various places you need to be quickly and be efficient. But then on the other hand, when I do a televisit in the clinic, I don't have a resident or fellow with me because I take my mask off so the patient can hear me and understand me. And I just wonder how much of our how much of the teaching is affected? I wonder how much of our I wonder how much of this we're going to keep as we move forward. I'd be curious to hear what you guys think about that. Yeah, Matt, I'll start with that one. So I think you know it's been an interesting process. I think even before COVID, at Mass General, I think there was a growing interest in adopting uh, more uh, telehealth and telemedicine sort of technology for patient care. Uh, but certainly with COVID, that really brought this to the forefront, and I think everyone had to adapt pretty quickly. Um, I think one of the areas in which it has definitely helped is that I'm sure, uh, like for many people, especially uh, the two of you, uh, you know, our patients come from a pretty broad geographic uh, distribution and area. So, uh, for example, here in New England, you know, we may have patients coming from Cape Cod or Martha's Vineyard in the islands or you know, other areas in, you know, New Hampshire, Vermont, and for those patients, uh, you know, transportation, mobility uh, may be issues, especially if uh, they're disabled or just have complex needs. Uh, and for that reason, adopting, you know, the various uh, video uh, platforms has, uh, has really been helpful uh, because it really uh, cuts down on their need to disrupt their day or their need for therapy or home nursing to um, to sort of uh, put all that on hold just to come talk to us for, you know, several minutes. Um, so that's been an advantage. Um, and the other area where it's also helped, I thought, was in um, really getting other family members or uh, people that are important uh, to the patient involved uh, in the encounters. And so with the video platforms, it's very easy for us to send a link to bring in other people, whether it's a family member or a power of attorney or anyone who is uh, closely involved with that patient's care. One of the areas that we have tried and are considering expanding is using it also as a platform for more, for more multidisciplinary care and follow-up. So there have been patients that I operated on over the past several months who uh, patients who underwent separation surgery and then would have to have care coordinated for post-operative radiosurgery, um, oftentimes we would uh, do a combined sort of um, telemedicine visit together with myself and radiation oncology, um, and uh, we found that to be helpful as well. So 
you know, there may be an opportunity to coordinate more multidisciplinary um, encounters in this way. So I think that's where um, there, there could be an opportunity. But I agree with you, Matt, that um, there's nothing like seeing a patient in person uh, and also from a training perspective um, because of the uh, lack of the social environment. I think it, it is harder to train uh, residents and fellows in that regard. So it sounds like you'll probably hopefully keep some of those uh, components moving forward as far as the, the multidisciplinary stuff. Uh, Ilya, same, same sort of sentiment on your end, or how is it, how is it with you guys? Yeah, very similar. I, you know, I, I like telemedicine for many of the patients, especially for follow-ups. You know, I used to just uh, feel very guilty about having somebody drive into New York City, um, park, you know, wait in the waiting room when uh, our visit would take, you know, five or ten minutes when we'd look at the scan together and say, oh, well, I'm glad you're doing well. Thanks for stopping by for this uh, three- or six-month follow-up visit. And then the patient would spend the next three hours getting home. And now we can do this, uh, you know, without them leaving the house. So I think in many ways that it really is a great way to do things. Um, and uh, some of the patients are debilitated, and it's even more of a challenge for them um, in a preoperative and postoperative setting. Um I think the multidisciplinary concept that John uh, has mentioned, we haven't actually done it uh, in my practice yet, but uh, we started talking about it. Um, so I think that's quite interesting. There are some pitfalls that I'll say. Um, you know, it hasn't quite uh, gotten me in trouble, but uh, there have been a few instances um, of the services and such where, you know, it's easy to forget that uh, the physical exam is really important for us uh, as physicians sometimes. So it's not just about the scan and talking to the patient. So, um, you know, I think we, when we use telemedicine, we always have to remember um, whether this is adequate or not. And uh, perhaps as we use telemedicine more, I'm sure there are going to be some you know, sort of quality assurance and safety mechanisms in place to remind us of that. Um, so I think if we stick with telemedicine, that'll be the way of the future. You know, I think another thing that um, I guess we'll all have to answer to, just because I'm sure our institutions will want that, will be... Um, how will the peers handle telemedicine uh, in the future? Right now, uh, it's equivalent to in-person visits, but uh, I think everybody's quite uncertain about what will happen in the future. And depending on how these telemedicine visits will be reimbursed, I'm sure that many of our institutions will tell us to either keep it or get rid of it. But all in all, I think just in terms of the ease of care for the patients, it's great. So that's that is such a... Sorry, man. Go ahead, John. No, no, please go ahead. I, know, I was going to say that those are actually great points, Sylvia, because I've had uh, situations myself where, um, you know, trying to get a patient approved for surgery from an insurance company and they come back and say that there was no uh, documented physical exam. Uh, and, you know, when we respond back and say that this was a virtual visit uh, because of COVID restrictions, um, there, there is a little bit of pushback. So it's interesting that even though uh, there are sort of restrictions placed due to uh, issues going on with society, that there still are insurance issues that need to be worked through. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was going to say, John. Actually, is that you know I I remember my first couple televisits and and going to put a note in and uh, you know thinking of what, you know, is there any exam and thinking, well, they, let's see, they moved their arms. Did, were they, did I see them stand up? I don't think I did. You know, and it was just kind of a relearning, you know, a, a different encounter that I'd never really, you know, 
done before, never really paid attention to before, I guess. So, uh, yeah, that, that's also uh, been something here we've we've tried to to figure out. Uh, probably running a little short on time here, but I, I think we can finish up just uh, talking a little bit about kind of on that same uh, uh, that same topic of you know efficiency in these these uh, you know platforms that we're doing uh, clinic visits on. You know, we're seeing the same thing for courses. So, you know, the NAF meeting was was uh, certainly different this year. I, I guess I can't say if I if I think it was better or worse. I'm not really sure, to be honest. Um, certainly there's pros to that. Uh, you, you know, you can dip in and out of different talks like we were talking about. You know, but as I was thinking about this podcast tonight, I realized I, I met both of you guys when I was a fellow at different courses and different conferences. So So I fear that, you know, a shift too hard in the direction of virtual things would we'd lose some of that. Uh, but then, uh, you know, but then I wonder if, if, you know, keeping some of that virtual component is going to help with, with collaboration across centers. Uh, so I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that or, or what, what the future might look like uh, for NAS and for other uh, courses and things moving forward. Um, no, I think that's a great question and a great point. I, I think we'll uh, find a balance. Um, you know, I think, again, there are some advantages to, being virtual, uh, and I guess the, the most immediate advantages are the fact that you can listen and watch um, different presentations and conferences without having to go uh, places. Uh, but you're absolutely right. You know, I think there is an interpersonal component that we're all missing. You know, I think uh, we formed uh, friendships, um, you know, different relationships in terms of collaboration and learning from each other that are very hard to form anew and uh, even maintain in some ways when we don't see each other. So. Now, I certainly miss seeing my colleagues, and as soon as we're uh, able to safely reconvene, whether it's at NAS or another meeting, I'm looking forward to that, as I'm sure many of us are. Uh, but I do think that it can open uh, meetings like NAS to a much broader geographic uh, attendance. Um, you know, I think uh, it's easy enough for us to fly somewhere in North America to a meeting uh, a lot of the time for a day or two. But, you know, I think if somebody's in Europe or another continent uh, farther away, it's uh, quite a bit of a challenge for them. And, uh, you know, I think if we're able to maintain a certain virtual presence of a more international um, physician uh, uh, population through this, I think uh, everybody wins. Yeah, I agree agree with Ilya. I think that one of the things that I I think I've learned through this experience is that uh, there are many aspects of the national meetings where uh, we don't necessarily have to wait um, for one time point every year uh, for a certain level of engagement, you know, and I think that um, what I've seen is that at least now with social media, it seems that um, people, physicians, surgeons are, are looking for more engagement, you know, ways to collaborate and, you know, even mentorship with students and trainees. And I think that through various uh, platforms like LinkedIn, Twitter, um, I think you're seeing a lot of that, Um so I think that, you know, there will probably be a way to uh, integrate some of this uh, virtual learning uh, through various societies or organizations like NAFs where, you know, all the content won't necessarily be um, sort of reserved for the annual meeting. But I think uh, the way that uh, technology is and the way that people are now communicating through social media, uh, there will be opportunities to sort of interface more um, on a regular basis. Uh, but I agree with Ilya, there, there's nothing like getting together. Um, and I think that a lot of us have learned from each other uh, and have um, 
you know, really uh, formed collaborations and great relationships through um, that type of interaction. So it'll be interesting to see how um, societies and organizations sort of try to integrate that um, into their overall plan. Yeah, those are, those are great points of, of uh, keeping some of it moving forward, right? Go, kind of getting back to uh, safely uh, getting to interact again, but then keeping some of those components. I mean, John, John, I know you've been a big part of, uh, or you're one of the founders, I guess, of the virtual uh, global spine conference that started at the beginning of the year. And uh, I, I guess having attended it quite a bit, it seems like something that'll probably continue. And it's a, it's a very uh, nice way, I think, that a lot of us can showcases and discuss things. And, and you're right, without having to be at, at, at one of the big meetings, just on a more regular bite size um, uh, uh, schedule, so to speak. Um, so, uh, uh, guys, I want to thank you both again. I think we're probably a little bit uh, over time here, so uh, I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. Um, uh, thanks again for a great session. Uh, uh, great comments about how uh, this has affected uh, both your centers and your individual practice. Um, I think on behalf of John Chin from Harvard and Mass General and, and Ilya Laufer of uh, Sloan Kettering uh, in New York, um, I want to thank the listeners for joining us and uh, for another great session. Uh, until next time, I'm Matthew Goodwin, Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, this has been the NAS section on spinal oncology. Uh, thanks again, guys, and uh, please, everyone, stay safe. <laughs>